0: So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting Bluehost.com. That's Bluehost.com.
1: I'm John Donvan. The relationship between North Korea and the U.S. is changing every day. This debate was recorded on May 2nd, 2018. A Nobel Peace Prize for Donald Trump Is that what it all could come to, all of this talk, of talks between the U.S. and North Korea, with the aim, on the U.S. side at least, of getting North Korea to abandon its nuclear ambitions? If that were actually to happen, that would be big league Peace Prize stuff. But is it even likely? Where is the trust that a deal like that would require? Where are the incentives for each side to come to the table? Does diplomacy actually have a chance here, given the past, given the personalities, Given the stakes, well, to us, that sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, negotiations can denuclearize North Korea. I'm John Donvan with a special edition of Intelligence Squared US in partnership with the Georgetown Women's Forum. We have four superbly qualified debaters who will attack this question from opposite sides. First, though, as a special edition, I want to welcome to the stage a journalist and best-selling author who, in 2011 went undercover in North Korea, posing as a missionary and as an English teacher to the Sons of North Korean Elites, came out and wrote an astounding book about it. Please welcome Suki Kim. Hi, Suki. Hi. Suki, I just gave away a little bit of your your biography and your astounding story. Uh, You started visiting North Korea uh, back in 2002, And you made this trip where you lived for six months, basically undercover in 2011. Where did the compelling interest come from?
2: Well, I mean, professionally, um, it was very obvious when I first went in in 2002 which I went in uh, by joining a pro-North Korean organization that's based in New Jersey, of all the places. (laughs) Um, So I joined them, and I went in for Kim Jong-il, who was the then great leader, whose current great leader, Kim Jong-un's father. It's his 60th birthday celebration that I went in for. And um, I ended up doing a cover feature for the New York Review of Books. Um, Early 2000 comes right at the end of the Great Famine of North Korea, about a tenth of population had died. So by 2002... A tenth of the population. We approximate, right? Because you astounding. never know for... You, you can't verify the number yeah. ever, but that's about... <laughs> how many people died, and North Korean population is 25 million. So we're counting about 2 to 3 million deaths. So uh, in 2002, when I went in, the devastation was pretty much just in your face. You know, I didn't expect anything to be this dire. And the then great leader's birthday is in February, which was freezing. There was obviously, I mean, I slept with a coat on, and I slept in the VIP quarter back then because... You know, there just was no heat. But beyond that, I think it was this sense of what this world was, where you can't go anywhere, you can't say anything, there's nothing except a great leader. And I needed to understand this.
1: And then, and then you got this unbelievably distinct, unique look at the young generation. So in 2011, the, the key plot is that you got a job teaching English. You passed yourself off as an English teacher at a school that specializes in teaching the sons of the power elite of North Korea. These are all the, the golden boys. And interestingly, they learn English. And you went in there for six months. You spoke English every single day. You were not allowed to speak Korean. And that's the amazing part of the book. Because if you were caught, you would not be sitting here now in all likelihood. Um, how, did, how did you get away with it? How did you pull it off?
2: Well, I mean, it took the Pyongyang University of Science and Technology, the school that I went in, passing myself off as an evangelical school teacher. That university was being set up in the suburb of Pyongyang uh, by an international evangelical organization. And that evangelical organization had promised with the North Korean regime to not proselytize. Uh So basically... Fundamental evangelical Christians were pretending not to be Christians in North Korea. And I was pretending to be a fundamental evangelical who's pretending not to be evangelical. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's kind of so how So the I lying
1: begins. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I mean, if it wasn't for that, I couldn't have gotten away with it. I've never read a Bible in my life, you know. And, <laughs> and they actually were not allowed to even talk about Christianity ever. And hmm. that's where I ended up. In this military compound which was 24-7 guarded, nobody was allowed to leave. I did bring in the smallest USB sticks, and I wore them around my neck like a necklace. I also buried the documents within a document, so it looked like an English lesson. But, you know, from page 100, the book begins.
1: Did you like your students?
2: I love them. And I think that it's complicated, because... You know, I was a journalist looking at them as a subject. But at the same time, in order to be a really, really good immersive journalist, you also have to sincerely be there as a teacher. One thing that I I remember doing was always going over what I might have said. I had to also eat with the students three times a day. You know, they might start talking about their girlfriend, which they might not. In the beginning, they didn't. It was always about the great leader. And slowly, they might talk about the girlfriend. <laughs> they all said, we have um, no interest in girls. And these are 20-year-old boys. Clearly, they're lying. <laughs> But by the end, they would tell me, it's only for me they would tell me about their girlfriend. So this kind of conversation, sometimes then you slip things in order to find out more about what's going on in this country. You know, how many channels of television? For example, they might ask me, because North Korea only has one channel, really, that officially works, and that only shows the great leader programs. But.
1: Is that a good show? <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's unbelievable how yeah, many did. things you can say about the great leader, which is what that um, <laughs> country does. It's the same thing over. It's a deja vu. It's a place like a groundhog there. It's really the. And I think that's the thing. And, you know, it it's so, looks so bizarre, I think, to the Western world. But in there, it's the same information that's being told over and over and over and over again. And to think this has been going on, not just for a year, not for five years, for 70-some years. You know, do, there's do, only, but do, they,
1: do these boys know what the outside world is about then?
2: Uh, they didn't even know what the Internet was. First of all, North Koreans cannot travel outside or within the country. There's a check post between each town. Everything is blocked. All the information you ever get is about North Korea. Education isn't really possible. My students didn't really know about a lot of things because basically they only get information about the great leader or anything is related to the great leader.
1: How does North Korea expect to prepare itself for a future if its generation of star students is, you know, they're learning English but they don't know anything in a certain way. They don't know anything.
2: You know, they're not dumb, but all the information has to be stripped for them to not think critically. And that's one of the things I really, really began noticing about my students. When I said they seem much younger, in an abused world, you end up... Because you never make decisions on your own.
1: The title of your book is...
2: Without you, there is no us.
1: Which comes from...
2: One of the most popular songs in North Korea, because it's only the great leader that owns everything in that world.
1: Suki Kim... Thank you so much for, for setting the table for us in a fantastic way. Thank you. Thank you, Suki Kim. And now we're going to move on to our debate proper. Our motion is this, negotiations can denuclearize North Korea. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience here at the museum in Washington, D.C., and the audience watching online will vote to choose the winner. And as always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. And now it's time to meet our debaters. Let's start with the team arguing for the motion, negotiations can denuclearize North Korea. Arguing for the motion, first, let's welcome and meet Suzanne DiMaggio. And Suzanne, um, you're a senior fellow at New America. You've been leading diplomatic initiatives in places like Iran and North Korea for nearly... 20 years. And in May of last year, you facilitated the first official discussions between the Trump administration and the North Korean government's representatives. Uh, Before we get here tonight, something you specialize in is called leading Track 1.5 and Track 2 diplomatic initiatives. Let's get this out of the way. If you can tell us in 30 seconds, what is Track 1 and what is Track 2?
3: I can do that. Okay. So Track 1 is official diplomacy between governments and Track 2 is unofficial dialogue among non-governmental participants. And at the risk of sounding particularly wonky, track 1.5 is somewhere in between. It includes a mix of official and unofficial participants.
1: We welcome Wonk here tonight. Thank you very much, Suzanne DiMaggio. And you have an impressive partner on your side as well, Bonnie Jenkins. Ladies and gentlemen, Bonnie Jenkins. Uh, Bonnie, you are a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution during the Obama administration. You were at the State Department. Uh, You're an ambassador. Uh, You were working on chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear threats on a daily basis. Uh, You said that you got into the field of arms control by accident in a sentence or two. How does one get into that by accident?
4: Um, I got into it by accident mainly because I was a fellow at the uh, Department of Defense, and I went with my colleague to a meeting, and I had no idea what they were going to be talking about. And they were talking about the Strategic Arm Reduction Treaty, and I said, this is really cool. I want to do this. So I've been doing it ever since.
1: We're going to see tonight just how cool it is. Again, thank you, Bonnie (laughs) Jenkins, and the team arguing for the motion. Negotiations can denuclearize North Korea. We have a team arguing against it. Please first welcome Sumi Terry you are a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies you are widely recognized as one of the world's foremost experts on North Korea you were the CIA's top Korea analyst one of the top Korea analysts during the Bush administration and when you were recruited to work for the CIA they told you that if you wanted to know what Kim Jong Il eats for breakfast, you should come work for them. So did you ever get the answer to that question? No,
5: I never got to find out what Kim Jong-il ate for breakfast, but I got to find out that his favorite food in the whole world was toro, fatty tuna. So that's something that I had kind of in common with Kim (laughs) (laughs) Jong-il. Love of sushi and toro.
1: All right, thank you very much. Terry. And also a powerful partner on your side, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mira Rap Hooper. Mira, you're a senior research scholar at Yale Law School, a senior fellow at Yale's Paul Tsai China Center. Your areas of expertise are uh, deterrence, nuclear strategy, alliance politics, among others. Um, you recently co-wrote an essay titled Perception and Misperception on the Korean Peninsula. That was in Foreign Affairs. Among the many misconceptions that you, you think uh, Americans might have about North Korea, what's, what tops the list for you?
0: I think the biggest misperception is that either the United States or North Korea reads the other side's signals as intended. This is often a major problem in international politics, never more so than in a relationship amongst adversaries. But because there is so little diplomatic contact between our two countries, signals are harder than ever to read between these two. Okay,
1: and let's hope we can shed light tonight. Did I say misconception and you corrected me? I think you did very, very gently I may have without done embarrassing so gently. me. I and may I, have. I really appreciate that you did that for me. Again, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing against the motion, negotiations can denuclearize <laughs> North Korea. Trust, diplomacy, and opening statements. When Intelligence Squared US continues. I'm John Donvan. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S., where four debaters are about to begin facing off on one of the toughest foreign policy issues of the 21st century. So we go in three rounds, and in the first round, each debater makes an opening statement. They will be uninterrupted. And first, to speak for the motion, negotiations can denuclearize North Korea, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and former State Department official. Ladies and gentlemen, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins.
4: When I was first told that I would have an opportunity to be a part of this debate and that my motion would be that negotiations can lead to denuclearization, I said, "Of course, of course. Why not?" Um, but then I said, "Let me step back a bit and say a little bit about why I have that perception." I have spent my life working in the area of nuclear proliferation chemical, biological, nonproliferation, and arms control. So I spent my life sitting at the table with others, negotiating treaties, working out, working with the delegations, drafting treaty texts, and really making the what may seem impossible, possible. I've also done some research on this. Actually, my topic for my dissertation was, why do countries decide that they want to or not develop nuclear weapons, and how does non actions really play a role in that decision-making? And I have found out in all of the research that a very important part of this is a leader. And when a leader decides that a country is ready to give up a nuclear weapon or a nuclear weapon program, then they're ready to sit at the table and talk. And we have examples of countries giving up nuclear weapons or giving up nuclear weapons programs. We have Argentina and Brazil. We have Belarus, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan. We have South Africa. All of these countries decided at some point that they wanted to give up their nuclear weapons or their nuclear weapons program. And at some point, a leader made a decision that that was the right thing to do. We have Iran. We all know about the Iran agreement. That was also an agreement that many said could not happen for them to stop their nuclear weapons program. But there were fortunately some that believed that it was possible. And as a result, after many months, we have the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Agreement. So it can happen, and it did happen, and there's no reason why it cannot happen again. Of course, we do have one wrinkle. It's North Korea. And the problem is we have a history. We have a history in North Korea where there have been agreements, and those agreements didn't work. We're not saying that you should not take account of these things. In fact, when you're going into a negotiation, you should take into account the past. However, those are not reasons not to negotiate. You can never give up on diplomacy. You can never give up on trying to reach a conclusion with another side. We want to be at a point now, after all the saber-rattling, after all the words, to finally say, okay, let's sit down and talk, because we think we can make a difference now. And the table's set. We have the meetings between North Korea and South Korea. We have the meetings with North Korea and China. We have the upcoming meeting with the U.S. and North Korea. Why would these be happening if we didn't think it's possible? What's the point of doing all of this if we can't, have denuclearization. The time is right. We've had everyone do their thing with the, you know, we're going to threaten you with this and threaten you with that. Okay, now let's step back and let's do what we need to do to make sure that we can come to some decisions and some agreements on denuclearization. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Bonnie Jenkins. Our next debater will be speaking against the motion. Negotiations can denuclearize North Korea. That is Mira Rapp Hooper, senior research scholar at Yale Law. Ladies and gentlemen, Mira Rapp Hooper.
0: There is no bargain that can fully denuclearize North Korea at the negotiating table. Denuclearization is the complete, verifiable, irreversible disarmament. Of North Korea and its nuclear weapons program, as defined by policymakers and the Trump administration itself. And that is the heart of what we are debating tonight. North Korea believes it needs nuclear weapons to survive. The Korean War ended in 1953 with an armistice, and tens of thousands of American troops still on the Korean peninsula. North Korea invested in its conventional military, arraying artillery all along the demilitarized zone to ensure that South Korea and the United States could not invade it to topple the regime. Since the 1980s, it's had an active and secretive nuclear weapons program, and it first tested a nuclear weapon in 2006. Since coming to power, Kim Jong-un has invested more in his nuclear programs and his missile program than his father or his grandfather before him. For North Korea, nuclear weapons are existential. They are a matter of survival, and they are something that are now guaranteed. So what could the United States possibly offer up in exchange? Well, it could offer North Korea, logically, a security guarantee, a promise that it would never be invaded. But the only problem is, we've offered it countless times before and we've always been rejected. In private, North Korean nuclear negotiators repeatedly tell their American counterparts that U.S. security guarantees can't be trusted. They point to examples of the United States invading Iraq or invading Libya, having disarmed their opponent and then invaded those countries to topple the regime and show those as reasons why our security guarantees cannot be trusted. Why would they accept now what they have never accepted in the past? now that their nuclear arsenal and weapons program is complete. What we can do is do much better than we've done in the past, and that means pursuing realistic goals towards obtainable ends, arms control that will return weapons inspectors to the country and get a handle on these programs, working with our allies to contain and deter North Korea and prevent it from spreading the world's most dangerous weapons. But if we chase a promise that Kim Jong-un has not made and does not intend to keep, we face two very real risks. The first is that we make real concessions in exchange for a promise that is not real at all and miss this diplomatic opportunity. But the second, and worse still, is that when the Trump administration awakens from its denuclearization dream, it returns to a world in which it is considering a war on the Korean Peninsula. We are not in favor of the use of force. We are in favor of diplomacy towards realistic and obtainable goals. We ask you to vote for smart diplomacy and to vote against this motion.
1: Thank you, Mira Rao Cooper. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating for the motion. Suzanne DiMaggio, Senior Fellow at New America and U.S. DPRK Dialogue Director. Ladies and gentlemen, Suzanne DiMaggio.
3: Good evening, everyone. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, As we saw at the historic inter-Korean summit, Kim Jong-un told... South Korea's President Moon Jae-in that he was ready to give up his nuclear weapons in exchange for the United States, ending the Korean War formally, and promising not to invade their country. Of course, we've seen similar language in previous agreements and in previous failed attempts. But that should not stop us from pursuing what I think is the biggest opportunity for diplomacy with North Korea in almost 20 years. So when considering this evening's motion, I think there are three key questions we should explore. The first one is, is Kim Jong-un ready to come in from the cold? We've seen more of Kim Jong-un these past few weeks and heard more than we have during his entire six-year tenure as North Korea's leader. My best assessment of what's behind this unprecedented outreach is that he understands he needs to do this in order to gain acceptance of a new strategic policy he just put forward. This is the policy of economic reconstruction. 2017 was a pivotal year for Kim Jong-un. That is when he declared the completion of his nuclear force in November... And this leads me to my second question, why now? The North Koreans say they now have a deterrent to deter an attack from the United States, which enables them to come back to the negotiating table as an equal to the United States, as a nuclear power. And let's not forget, Kim Jong-un is not his father. He's 34 years old. He sees decades of rule ahead of him, and he understands that in order to maintain the Kim family dynasty, he's got to do something to address the economic conditions in North Korea. And there's only one way to do that, and that's to lift the sanctions. The third and final question is, how can we get to a successful outcome? And that's the most important question. I think we need to rigorously test whether Kim is serious about giving up his nuclear weapons in exchange for security guarantees and economic development. So I'd like to wrap up by saying that the wording of tonight's motion is particularly important. Negotiations can denuclearize North Korea. The operative word is can, which points to possibility. If the motion was will denuclearize North Korea, I wouldn't be up here to defend that because the simple fact is we don't know And the way I look at it is a vote in favor of this motion is a vote in support of diplomacy. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Suzanne DiMaggio. And our final debater in the opening round will be debating against the motion Negotiations Can Denuclearize North Korea. That is Sumi Terry, former CIA analyst and senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Ladies and gentlemen, Sumi Terry.
5: to say, when I saw the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un cross over the demilitarized zone and step foot in South Korea, it was a moving moment. I, you know, I got a little bit emotional. Particularly since several months ago, I was having sleepless nights um, because I was so concerned about all this talk of preventive military strike against North Korea that would have had catastrophic consequences, not only for the Korean Peninsula, but for the region and for the world. That said, ladies and gentlemen, can negotiations lead to denuclearization that's complete, irreversible, verifiable? I do not think so. I think negotiations will lead to an another agreement with North Korea. Sure, there's always an agreement. We have many agreements with North Korea. Every single time it fell apart over verification. We have a 1994-agreed framework bilateral agreement between the United States and North Korea. We have 1999 Geneva Accords, in which North Korea agreed to stop all its long-range testing. We have six rounds of six-party talks, which led to 2005 joint statement, 2007 joint declaration, every single time agreement federal power over verification. What has Kim Jong-un been doing since coming into power? Six and a half years, he's done four out of six nuclear tests, including hydrogen bomb tests, 90 ballistic missile tests, 20 last year alone, and North Korea has now declared itself a nuclear weapons power. So this is what Kim Jong-un has been doing. He has, like his father and grandfather, has pursued this program at cost of millions of lives and billions of dollars. But now he's going to all of a sudden give it up. So why did Kim Jong-un switch to this symmetry and diplomacy? Well, there's a lot of things that he wants, He wants sanctions relief. He wants money, food, fuel to flow into Pyongyang's pipelines. There are a lot of things that he wants, but it's not complete irreversible denuclearization of the North. Oftentimes, I have to distinguish what does North Korea mean by denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. North Koreans have historically meant by that denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula if the regime security is guaranteed, And that doesn't mean just a North unilateral disarmament. He's talking about breaking U.S.-South Korea alliance relationship, getting U.S. troops out of South Korea, and ending extended nuclear umbrella the U.S. has over South Korea and Japan so the regime can feel secure. This is what he means by denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. There's a long way to go there, and we're not going to get there.
1: Thank you, Sumi Terry. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is negotiations can denuclearize North Korea. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly, and they take questions from me and from you, our live audience here at the museum in Washington, D.C. The team arguing for the motion, Suzanne DiMaggio and Bonnie Jenkins, they have argued that basically right now the table is set, that we are living in a very optimistic time, deals that once seemed impossible actually can be reached. The team arguing against the motion, Sumi Terry and uh, Mira Rap Hooper, they're saying that denuclearization is a pipe dream. They cannot conceive of a deal that the United States would offer Kim Jong un that he would actually accept. His leadership thinks that that nation needs nuclear weapons in order to survive. Bonnie Jenkins, let me go first to you, as somebody who's been involved in a great deal of, of these negotiations. The issue of trust, where it applies to North Korea and Kim Jong un, can he be trusted?
4: You don't have to trust somebody necessarily to have negotiations. Um, you have negotiations because you want to come to a conclusion, and that's why you have verification. We've had numerous negotiations with the Soviet Union, when it was the Soviet Union and with Russia. There were times we didn't necessarily trust them, but we still came to agreement on arms control issues, on nuclear issues. So trust of course, you want to have trust. But if there is an important issue that you want to work on, which is reducing nuclear weapons... You figure out how to make it happen, and then you verify.
1: Sumi, you you were arguing also that the North Koreans have made agreements, and they've made agreements, and they've made agreements, and they've never really lived up to them. And that's where I think this question of trust comes in again. So can you, just to stay on that point of trust for one more round? absolutely.
5: First of all, North Koreans doesn't trust us either. They often bring up 1994 agreed framework, and then when the Bush administration came in, he, he scuttled the deal according to North Korean perspective, And now we are looking at the Trump administration. If he scores the Iran deal, how can the North Koreans trust us? And just one last word on Kim Jong-un, on the man. Just because he's so popular now after all this summitry and diplomacy, can we not forget that just a year and a half ago that this is a guy who killed his half-brother using banned WMD chemical weapons in a major international airport, please? (laughs) Bonnie?
4: I think, I think we can all agree that he's a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't, think there's disagreement about, uh, I don't think there's disagreement about him being bad and he's not being trustful. I, I think the point here is that you have to think about how much is that going to weigh in what you want to do now. Let's sit down, you know, roll up our, our sleeves, and think about how we can try to make the situation Jenkins,
1: I hear from your opponents mm-hmm. very, very heavy notes of pessimism. Does that mean your side actually... Has optimism, or is that going too far?
4: I think what you've been hearing a lot of people say is, is optimism, but be careful. Okay. See me. See me so turn.
5: let's, the face of facts, we're dealing with the Trump administration. Um, so you want him to, them to have optimism. We're talking about John Borton as a national security advisor, okay? <laughs> you want them to have optimistic
0: thinking that they're going to get civvied. And, and part of the reason we have focused the debate the way we have today is that this definition for denuclearization, complete, verifiable and irreversible, is precisely the definition that the Trump administration is using. It was reiterated by former CIA director, now secretary of state, Mike Pompeo. And our concern is that if we go into a negotiation with this as a legitimate objective, and the Trump administration feels burned, that it immediately tacks back into thinking about preventive war. That is not the world we want to live in. So
3: I do want to clarify, I'm not arguing for optimism, I'm arguing for pragmatism. But I also (laughs) want to bring to the table that, don't forget, Mike Pompeo met Kim Jong-un in Pyongyang, rather remarkable, and Mike Pompeo has said that he discussed extensively with Kim Jong-un what complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization would be. Pompeo then reported that Kim was prepared to lay out a map to help us achieve it.
1: Okay, let's go to some questions then. Right down here in the green shirt. Yeah, hi, my name is Dave Walensky, just for the side four I think everyone would acknowledge that China has the most influence by far of any country in North Korea. Given
4: that, and given that the Chinese themselves have not been able to denuclearize North Korea, how can we then come up to the same table?
3: You know, China's primary goal with North Korea has not been denuclearization. It's been regional stability. They don't want a collapse of North Korea. They don't want refugees flooding their uh, borders, and they certainly don't want U.S. troops on their border. But the point about China is let's keep keep things in mind. They have done a much better job uh, bringing tougher sanctions against North Korea. That's one of the reasons why we're at this point, because the sanctions are biting. China is going to play one of the key roles, because in terms of security guarantees, who do you think is going to be the guarantor for North Korean
0: security?
1: Do you think China's role strengthens your argument in this debate?
0: Absolutely.
1: Would the opposing side like to respond?
0: Sure. I I think you could also make uh, a, a very clear opposing argument, which is that exactly as Suzanne said, the Chinese have always been more interested in stability on the Korean Peninsula than in denuclearization.
1: More questions from the audience and the results of tonight's debate still to come when Intelligence Squared U.S. continues. And a reminder of where we are, we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, Negotiations Can Denuclearize North Korea. Suzanne DiMaggio, your opponent's saying that North Korea and Kim Jong-un in particular have no incentive whatsoever to give up their nuclear weapons, and you're actually presenting them with one. This idea that he wants to step out into the world, that he has something to trade now and he would be willing to trade it. Just take 30, 40 more seconds on that point, and then let's have your opponent's respond to some of that. Yeah,
3: so uh, what I don't understand is why would Kim take this risk right now? He has this nuclear program. Uh, he has an ICBM that theoretically can hit where we're sitting right now, he could just hunker down, sit there in Pyongyang, and, and continue life as it is. So something is motivating him, and I think they have made the calculation that without some drastic changes in their economic conditions, that regime will fall.
1: And, and you're saying that despite your opponent saying he would never give up his nuclear weapons because that's existential for them, you're saying that that actually is a price he would pay for the benefit that you're outlining. It
3: is the ultimate bargaining chip.
1: So I, I, what I wanted to tease out of that was that your opponent's actually presenting an incentive, something that would make it worth it. Uh, why don't you take that on, Mira Rap Hooper?
0: Yeah, this is a really important argument to engage because we are not disagreeing that sanctions may play some role in North Korea coming to the negotiating table. We are simply arguing that on the basis of this economic incentive, they are not prepared to fully disarm. Suzanne, in her opening statement, in fact, made the essential point that Kim Jong-un has claimed victory already with his nuclear arsenal. He now also faces the possibility of being able to enter negotiations and drag them out. If he comes back to the negotiating table, makes modest, very minor concessions, holds out denuclearization as a pipe dream goal that he never intends to make good on, he can reduce the risk of war to him and begin to get economic benefits without ever making good on that promise.
1: Well, Well, Just
4: a couple of things. You have to keep in mind that this is not going to be a negotiation that's going to happen overnight. When you're saying that he's going to drag it out, keep in mind that this is going to take a while. I mean, the Iran agreement took over 20 months. This is going to take a while regardless. And we can't really, at this point, predict that that's going to happen. I think we're, at a, we're not at that point that we can say that that's, that that's specifically going to happen.
5: Again, we're not saying we're not going to have a discussion. We are, I'm for engagement. I'm for dialogue. We are going to have a discussion. He could even ask for a grand bargain, normalization for denuclearization, grant things like peace treaty. And we also talked about what peace treaty means, right? Getting U.S. force eventually off the Korean Peninsula and ending U.S.-South Korea alliance. But I do think one important issue has not come up is this verification. We, we, it came up a little bit. It's really impossible to verify. Right now, I work in the intelligence community. I worked at the CIA over for 10 years. And let me tell you, we don't know how many weapons they have and we don't know where they are. There are so many covert facilities and thousands and thousands of underground tunnels. And it's going to be hard to even verify
4: and it might be a little easier to verify if you can actually have people in there looking around over and seeing. No, and, and, and we're not going to get that unless we have a negotiation. Exactly. Unless we we can't say at this point we're never going to be able to find it and it's not going to work. You have to have the discussions and you have to have the people in there and you don't have that right now.
1: Sir on the right on the aisle?
0: Yeah. Sure. So my name is Luke. And one of these things that we heard from the Khan side was about accountability with Kim Jong-un. I don't think anyone in this room probably would trust this guy, right? But what about regional actors who may be interested in negotiations to denuclearize North Korea? For instance, South Korea, Japan, China. What role may they play in denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula?
1: Let me take that first to the side arguing against.
0: So there's no question. Yeah, th- there's no question that any agreement that we come to, whether it's arms control, as we're arguing, or the big, lofty denuclearization goal, uh, requires other countries that are not just the United States. And in response to Kim Jong-un's visit to Beijing, the Chinese have already promised to begin letting guest workers uh, from North Korea back into China. That is, before Kim Jong-un has done anything, the Chinese have already begun to grant him economic relief. So part of what we're calling here... For here is realistic goals that all of these international actors can get behind. Because if we leave the goal too lofty, then everybody gets to define it for themselves and move the levers of pressure and incentives as they see fit, as opposed to in relationship to something tangible that we can all agree to definitively.
3: I'm glad you raised this question because I really want to give special attention to South Korea. We would not be here without President Moon Jae-in and his deaf diplomacy. Kim Jong un told Moon that it was ready to step back from one of its one obstacle to past negotiations, and that was the North Korean insistence that the U.S. remove their troops. North Koreans are now saying they won't insist on that. That's a major positive sign. He also told Moon that they do not expect economic sanctions to be lifted immediately. They understand this is a process, and we have control over it. Unless and until they do verifiable steps towards denuclearization, we don't have to do a thing. This isn't child's play. This is something that professionals do, people who work in negotiation, people who work in verification.
1: Okay, another question.
0: Hi, my name's Christine. Christine. Um, this question is going to double down on optimism. It seems like a common sense solution for the U.S. also to offer to denuclearize. Has that ever been on the table? And if it were, <laughs> do you think the North Koreans would trust that and both sides would move to verifiable denuclearization. I'm so glad well, you
1: asked that question, because that was the one I wanted to get to before I went to audience questions. Thank you. Well, Let's it, take it to uh, Suzanne DiMaggio well, great and question. Bonnie and Jenkins. In the
3: past, when the North Koreans have talked about denuclearization, this is exactly what they meant, reciprocal. They're not saying
4: that now, because they know it's a non-starter.
0: Bonnie Jenkins.
1: And,
4: and no, the U.S. has never, that's never been an issue with the U.S. getting rid of its nuclear weapons.
0: I'll return to this because my partner Sue has said it several times already, and I don't want to ask her to repeat herself again. But that is the fact that North Korea has always called for the denuclearization of the entire Korean Peninsula. And that is the language that appeared in the joint statement between North and South Korea. And that when they say the denuclearization of the entire Korean Peninsula, they mean the end to the U.S. alliance with South Korea, the removal of American troops from the peninsula. And that's not true. No that is not ex-
3: true. How can you say that? They have that's
0: how, what they've always meant. But and they
3: haven't said it this time. But
0: it's in in the fact, peace
3: declaration what they're saying company. is rem- Removing the nuclear and strategic assets from South Korea, not our troops. Stopping the what deployment of nuclear assets. Asset. We don't have any nuclear assets. Exactly. So we <laughs> take them there and tell them, have a
1: look. If you could uh, tell us your name, please. Down front here. If you could stand up, sir. Hi, I'm
4: Ali Wine with RAND. So the Trump administration and its North Korean counterpart officials from both sides are very, seem to be very optimistic going into these negotiations. Um, what are each side's
1: sources of leverage going into these negotiations, and then what are each side's weaknesses and blind spots? Okay, so who holds what cards?
3: The incentives, of course, are all uh, what I've mentioned, the security guarantees, peace treaty, normalization. You know, and I have to say, I think the North Koreans see an opportunity in Donald Trump. They see someone who's uh, very, very eager to cut a deal, they see someone who doesn't give a hoot about human rights, so they don't expect any lectures there. So maybe in their mind, of all the things I've said, they also say, hey, this is the U.S. president for, for us. Let's do this.
1: But are you giving ammunition to the other side, Justin? <laughs>
3: yeah. No, I'm saying they want to do a deal with this president. When I was in Pyongyang in February 2017,
4: he was in office three weeks. They brought up the idea of a summit at that point. And I would, I, would just, I would just add to what Suzanne said. You know, there's the Iran situation and what, what we do with Iran. I think it's going to be something that is uh, uh, something that's in the game. And also um, uh, our recent nuclear posture review where we committed to building more nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. However, I will say, despite all of that, he still wants to meet. To negotiations.
1: The other side. I agree cemetery. with
5: everything Suzanne said. Um, North Korea has been thinking about this for a very long time. They are now; com- they have completed their program, and they're now walking into this meeting thinking they are in a position of strength, and they're going to try to play Trump administration. They're going to offer something that's going to sound and look good to the Trump administration that's going to come back to haunt us later. And this is exactly the
0: scenario that we're warning against.
1: Mira Rapp, you get the last word.
0: Uh, I would very much agree that North Korea's greatest strength is its deft negotiating position that it's been playing for the last year, its completed nuclear arsenal, and the fact that it increasingly has both South Korea and China on its side because of our president's bad behavior, and that the primary weakness on the U.S. side is the likelihood that the Trump administration is going to fall for a deal that is not good for the United States or the world because it is looking so much to score the win. But I'll also... uh, Uh, underscore strength on the U.S. side, which is the fact that for all that our State Department's been decimated and is understaffed, we still do have extraordinary civil servants staffing our back channel and trying to staff this uh, summit to prepare as best as they possibly can under otherwise very adverse
1: circumstances. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is negotiations can denuclearize North Korea. And now we move on to round three. Round three will be in closing statements by each debater in turn. Speaking first for the motion, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, non resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and former State Department official.
4: Well I hope that you all enjoyed the debate. And I just want to say one thing I didn't talk about is I spent twenty two years in the military. And during my time in the Navy, I did one of those exercises. I went to South Korea, and I did one of the military exercises with them, one of the exercises that North Korea is so concerned about. It was a great experience. I met a lot of really great South Koreans, and it was a really uh, big exercise with all the branches of the U.S. and South Korean uh, military involved. But I will say that despite the fun that we had and the friends that we made, none of us wants that to be a reality. None of us wanted to say that this is actually something that we really have to be worried about and that everything that we're practicing, we really have to do. So we should be doing everything possible to try to bring peace to the the region. We should do everything possible to negotiate whenever we have a chance, to take every opportunity to try to find a way to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula and to find a way that we can reduce the tensions so that we don't have to worry about a nuclear exchange or any other kind of war on the peninsula. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Bonnie Jenkins. Our next speaker will be speaking against the motion, making her closing statement, Sumi Terry, former CIA analyst and senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies.
5: My paternal grandparents came from North Korea. They happened to be in South Korea when the Korean War broke out, and they never made it back. So their lifelong wish was to see their separated parents and siblings and see unification and peace on the Korean Peninsula. Unfortunately, both of them passed away without seeing either. We're asking you to vote for our side of the motion, not because we don't fervently hope for a peaceful solution in the Korean Peninsula, but exactly because we do. Now, Suzanne said we need to pay attention to what North Koreans are saying. We need to read what they're saying. So I actually brought something to read. In the New Year's editorial address, which launched all this diplomacy and summary, Kim Jong-un said, U.S. will not dare to invade us because we currently have a powerful nuclear deterrent. Kim stated during the plenary session of the Korean Workers' Party, North has completed nuclear arsenal as a firm guarantee that North Koreans worked hard with their belt tightened to acquire a powerful treasured sword for defending peace. So does this completion or perfection of nuclear arsenal sound like a prelude to unilateral disarmament of North Korea? Does it sound like a leader who's ready to give up completely irreversibly his nuclear weapons program? Um, we do need to hear what the North Koreans are telling us. We are urging you to vote against this motion today because falsely raised expectation is actually more dangerous and more risky and not good ultimately for the peace of the Korean Peninsula.
1: Thank you, Sumit Uh The motion again is negotiations can denuclearize North Korea and here to make her... Closing statement in support of the motion, Suzanne DiMaggio, Senior Fellow at New America and U.S. DPRK Dialogue Director.
3: Over the course of my career, I've spent uh, many hours sitting across the table from those many would call adversaries. And one of the things I've learned from this experience is that things unexpected things happen when you're face-to-face. Preconceptions, what's happened in the past, assumptions, fly out the window. And we haven't had that with North Korea for a very long time. And the fact that we came so close to a war means it's time to get it started again. And I'd like to end with a quote. Actually, someone told me at the end of the debate, uh, if you ever want to win, quote the great diplomat Richard Holbrook. And come to think of it, I think it was Richard Holbrook who <laughs> told me that. Great diplomat and risk taker. So he said, I think history is continuous. It doesn't begin or end on Pearl Harbor Day or the day Lyndon Johnson withdraws from the presidency or on 9-11. You have to learn from the past but not be imprisoned by it. Our opponents have raised the fact that we haven't been able to do this in the past as the reason we shouldn't do it now. That makes no sense to me. In fact, it makes me more revved up to get this done. And I think the opportunity is too big before us. So please vote for this
1: motion. Thank you. You're just out of time. And that motion, again, is negotiations can denuclearize North Korea. And here to make her closing statement against the motion, Mira rapp Hooper, Senior Research Scholar at Yale Law.
0: Desiring to eliminate the danger of nuclear war through denuclearization of the Korean peninsula and thus to create an environment favorable for peace and peaceful unification of our country, North and South Korea declare that they shall not test, manufacture, produce, receive, possess, store, deploy, or use nuclear weapons. Was this the declaration between North and South Korea, you might suppose? Alas, it is not. It is the text of the 1992 agreement to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula. Signed by North Korea while it was in the midst of launching the nuclear weapons program, it has now completed. We have been down this road before. We believe that some deal with North Korea may be possible, but we also know that denuclearization has never been further from sight. A vote for this motion tonight is a vote for the same policy we've been pursuing towards North Korea's nuclear weapons program for the last 30 years. Join us instead in calling for smart diplomacy that has a fighting chance of making the world safer and more secure through realistic goals. Join us in voting against this motion.
1: Thank you, Mira Rapp Hooper. And that concludes our closing statements and round three. You have voted twice, and I now have the results, and we can declare the winner of this debate. On the motion, negotiations can denuclearize North Korea. Before the debate in polling, our live audience here in Washington, 34% agreed with the motion, 41% were against, 25% were undecided. Those are the first results. Again, it's the difference between the first and second vote that determines our winner, In the second vote, the team arguing for the motion, negotiations can denuclearize North Korea. Their first vote was 34%. Their second vote was 27%. They lost seven percentage points. The team against the motion in their first vote was 41%. Their second vote was 67%. They pulled up 26 percentage points. That means the team arguing against the motion. Negotiations Can Denuclearize North Korea, declared our winner by our audience here tonight. Our congratulations to them. Thank you, everybody. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Newseum in Washington, D.C., as part of the first Georgetown University Women's Forum. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Clea Chang is chief operating officer. Leah Mathau is vice president of programming. Shea O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Taylor Quimby, Aaron Dalton, and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm John Donvat, your host. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and Roku devices with the IQ2US app. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org these debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you, and with support from David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, Jennifer and Philippe Salende, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Edward Stern and Stephanie Ryan, and Emily and Antoine Van Actmill. From me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S., thank you all very much. Intelligence Squared U.S. will be live at the K Playhouse in New York City on Monday, May 14th. We'll be debating this motion, Automation Will Crash Democracy. Our debaters are Ian Bremmer, Yasha Monk, Andrew Keene, and Alina Palyakova. To learn more or to buy tickets, go to iq2us.org or click the link in the show notes. One last thing. Now we are asking for your help. When you give Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates five stars on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, you help other people find our podcast. So if you enjoy our debates, please rate and review us.